message from the Vineyard Church St Albans. Hope you enjoy it. We, okay, so we had, a, this is a great problem to have. We, after the first service, we had quite a run on Bibles, people asking for them, and we actually have run out of full Bibles, but we do have New Testaments. But I tell you what, if you, if you don't have a Bible, I don't, I'm not talking, we're not talking about Christians who've got a shelf full and they don't read them. If you haven't got a modern Bible, if you're visiting and you just, that's something you just don't possess, or you had one and you lost it, have a word with the guys at the welcome desk, that's the desk by the main entrance, and, and if you can leave an email address or some way of contacting you, we'll get some in and we'll make sure you get one. Uh, um, we would just love to do that. But I, I, I mean, it, it's so wonderful that the stock we had just went out. I mean, we always have them, but last service, there was, a, as I say, there was a kind of a run. I, I love this, this growing passion. It's like a rising tide that we're seeing of people who are hungry to know more about Jesus the Christ, that they're wanting to go deeper, they're wanting to discuss and the alpha thing that Rich mentioned is a, is a great course we hold in the autumn. You know, sign up for that or, uh, you know, or if, if you're not from this area, there's bound to be one near you, you know, join that. But I love this kind of hunger to, 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 to become a, a better disciple. That's the word that the Bible uses. And in that light, I just want to alert you to something that we run here and that's a discipleship year. Basically, it's where you, know, you might be in between jobs or you, you might be looking for a career change or you might just have that same hunger I'm referring to and you're thinking to yourself, I, I just want to give a bit of time to try and you know, ask questions and, and go get into this thing. And, and your circumstances, extraordinarily, may mean that you, can, you could actually consider that in this coming year. So the discipleship year means that you take a couple of days out, usually Monday or Tuesday, uh, and then you, do, you serve on Sundays. But it's, it's a way, we've just had eight, I think it is. Uh, Simon, how many disciples have we had this last year? Is it? Six. Six, I beg your pardon. We've just had six go through that. It's been an outstanding year group, outstanding opportunity, and you, you get to sort of really explore and go deeper. So, so here's a challenge for some of you, and it does, it's not about you know, students. We've, uh, I think the oldest guy in this last group was certainly in his, in his 40s, maybe even late 40s, but I'm not embarrassing. But, but this may be something that you want to do. Please just email the office and uh, ask to speak to, you know, for the attention of Richard. He was the guy who was up here last. And just talk to him. Because this might be something God has in mind for you in this coming year. And we would love to be part of your success story as you, as you go deeper in your faith. Okay, enough of that. Let's, let's just pray and then I'll get straight into the word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I want to say thank you to you for the opportunity of, of going deeper. Thank you, Lord God, that you have something in mind for us and it is good. And Lord, we want to tap into your thoughts, your mind, your heart, your passion, your purposes. And I pray that this next 25 minutes or so would, would be part of that. Lord, I, I, I pray that... Uh, Yes, that I'll, I'll be engaging. Uh, yes, that um, and I'll be entertaining even. But most of all, Lord, I pray that I'll be effective. That as I speak your truth, your word, that your word will find its, its place in our hearts and that it'll go deep and challenge and comfort and grow us in Christ's name. 
And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> okay. So if you've been coming along for the last few weeks, or if you haven't, it's just a bit of information, we've been uh, doing a series called Heroes. And uh, right at the beginning, uh, it was triggered by, I, I was on holiday visiting one of my children and grandchildren with my wife in California, and for want of something better to do, we went to see a, uh, a movie, I think it's called Avengers, I can't remember now actually, but it got me thinking, thinking you know, why is it that heroes have to wear tights? You know, why do they have to wear cloaks? You know, and I just thought, you know, real heroes are those, in my mind, you know, uh, and we all have our own opinion, in my mind, are those that, that don't just do one sort of spontaneous, impulsive act of heroism, although that is to be lauded and applauded, don't get me wrong. But the real heroes are those who just get on with it day in, day out, when nobody's looking, who serve and sacrifice. And, and as I was thinking about that, so the idea, the concept of a series began to develop, and, and I even came across this wonderful little definition of heroes, right at the bottom there, Psalm 16, verse three. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. That's what God's word. You know, the, 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 the people who will never have a, a statue erected in their honor in the marketplace or never get an MBE or anything. And I'm not dissing that. We have people who have been awarded MBEs in this congregation, praise God. But the true, <coughs> the true heroes in the land are those who, who are my faithful ones. And so we began this series, and actually to date, we have tended to hang our thoughts around Old Testament personalities. Now the Bible is divided into two-thirds what we call Old Testament, that's things that happened before Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born, and then a third, New Testament, which is stuff that happened in Jesus' lifetime, his ministry as we called it, and, and after that, so two-thirds, one-third. And so thus far, the illustrations, the, the thoughts, the people we have considered have all been Old Testament, prior to Jesus, and from now on, next few weeks, we're gonna be looking at people uh, you know, in Jesus' time and after. So today, it's kind of fitting. I'm just gonna have a little cough here. <coughs> there we go. Um, it's kind of fitting that we should be looking at someone who has become known as John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was actually a relative of Jesus's, a contemporary of his, slightly older, uh, he was a cousin, and John the Baptist is an extraordinary figure in the scriptures. Um, without going into the detail, and I'm going to leave quite a few gaps in this story in the hope that some of you might be intrigued, for want of a better word, uh, and that you might do a little bit of background reading yourself, and you can do that in the New Testament, so if all that you take away today is a New Testament, don't worry, you'll be able to follow this up. Uh, but you can read about John the Baptist and that. And, and John the Baptist was, I suppose, almost the cliche prophet. What do I mean by that? He was the kind of hairy, long-haired, sort of deeply suntanned, long-fingernailed, dressed in camel hair, eating locusts, had bad breath, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the kind of almost TV cliche, cliche prophet. And he had a very, very strong call from God. We'll look at that in just a minute. But he had a very strong call from God. He had many who deeply and profoundly admired him, but he also had enemies too. And as some of you know, without going to the whole story, some of you know that he actually ended up being imprisoned 
and uh, it came to what many would say or think was a sorry end when uh, a drunken party in Herod's palace resulted in him being decapitated as part of the floor show. Now, again, you can read about that in the scriptures. It was just a, a seemingly ignominious end to a, an extraordinary faithful and saintly life. But many of the martyrs have had similar ends, so there you go. So that, this is the guy we're talking about. And, and basically, as the scriptures report, and as many have commented since, he really does stand as it were, at the, the pivot point, if there's a seesaw here, and this is Old Testament and this is New Testament, he is, stands at the pivot point. There is much about him that looks backward to Israel's history and what has gone before. He is definitely has one foot in that camp. But he also looks forward, and he's all about looking forward and speaking of that which is about to break in upon them. So he stands at this kind of pivot point. He's an extraordinary character, an extraordinary hero, and one that, that is a worthy model as we transition from Old Testament into New. So two or three things to say about him then, things that define him. First of all, he was a man with a mission, a man with a mission. And the extraordinary thing about him, one of many extraordinary things, is that he didn't court favor. He didn't court publicity. He didn't have a PR machine behind him. He didn't spend his ministry and time in Jerusalem, which in those days, you would have to be in Jerusalem if you wanted to make an impact. Just like today, many people move into this area and look for work in London because when we're going through times of austerity and difficulty, you know, sometimes it's generally thought, and they may be right, that your best chances are, are to come to the center well, he was called by God to be a herald in God's name. And yet, instead of going and standing on the city walls, he did exactly the reverse. He went out into the desert. Now, some of you know that last year I went on sabbatical and I, I traveled on my own around Israel for a, a little while. And I'd been through that desert. I tell you, it is like the moon. I have never been anywhere like it. It is an extraordinary place. How anyone can survive there is a wonder to me. But through it runs this ribbon, which is the Jordan River. And of course, that's a little strip of fertility and vegetation, the rest of it. But that's where he went. He went out into the wilderness with this message. And do you know what? Because God was on him, because there was something about him, people began to follow. People began to seek him out. First of all, it was a, a little trickle. First of all, it was a handful of other weirdo types who just sort of hung out with him. But then the disciples started coming, the followers came, and they wanted to be mentored by him. And then, you know, little groups and little parties came, and a, a rivulet became a little river. A little river was a, a stream, a stream, you know, finally a raging torrent until it seemed like the whole Judean countryside was, was gathering in this extraordinary, spontaneous kind of human mishmash of people. And, and it was just an extraordinary phenomenon. And he started, he had this message, we'll look at 
two or three elements of his message in just a moment. He had this message which just burned in him. He couldn't keep quiet about it. It it wasn't sermon after sermon after sermon. It was just round and round the same themes, but it was so urgent. It was so, he was compelled to speak of these things to all and sundry. And one of the expressions of that, one of the results of that was that people wanted to be baptized and so he started baptizing people in the river as a sign and a symbol that they were changed now. That they would not go back to the things that they were once doing, that they wanted to live this new life of the kingdom. So what started as the most unpromising of beginnings, the most unattractive, you know, the most obscure of ministries ended up being an extraordinary phenomenon which we in the 21st century here in Hertfordshire, England are talking about even now. A man with a mission, a sense of God's call upon his life. And the message, if he was a man with a mission, he was a man with a message. And the message consisted of three or four things. I'm only going to give you two or three things today, and I want you hopefully to do a bit of homework. I've had to make some hard decisions about what to leave out because it's all vital. He was a man in one sense of few words and another sense of many words because he just kept saying them again and again and again. But the message, the part of the message I want to share with you today runs like this. First and foremost, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. That was... He he saw himself as a herald preparing the people for something that was about to happen, something that was imminent, something that was upon them, did they but know it. And he wanted to draw attention to this new move of God, this new thing, something that actually Israel, the nation, had been waiting for for generations. And he was saying, it's now, wake up, it's now, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, that language, it was quite clever really, the language was not unfamiliar to the people. Because actually what the priests and religious authorities were charged to do prior to every major festival in Jerusalem, and and everything was centered on Jerusalem in those days, and so if you wanted to celebrate the major festivals, you couldn't do it sort of in your local church or, or or St. Albans, you had to go to Jerusalem. And so the religious authorities were charged with preparing the way for the people. And that was very practical. What that meant was that in the run-up to the major uh, festivals, they would send work parties out onto the kind of roads, the tracks running into the city, and they were there to fill in potholes, move away to one side the stones that had come down off off the hillsides during the winter snows and rains. They were to clear the way so that the pilgrims could safely approach Jerusalem as they came to worship the Lord their God in the temple. So this prepare the way for the people was something that was generally new, known. But John took it and gave it a twist. He said, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. Look at your lives. Fill in the, you know, move the obstacles out of your life that that prevent you from, you know, going deeper with God, that prevent you from pressing into God. 
Fill in those potholes in your life, those things, those habitual sins, those things you keep revisiting, you seem to can't break free from. Prepare your, the way for the Lord because the Lord is coming and when he comes, you want to be ready, believe me. Prepare the way for the Lord. The second element of, of his message was repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Excuse me. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now this is interesting because actually when Jesus began his ministry and the two ministries, John the Baptist and Jesus, their ministries overlapped for a few short, possibly just a few short months. But Mark's gospel reports Jesus' message as being exactly the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. John and Jesus carry the same burning message on their hearts. And for a time, both, there are two voices in the wilderness, two voices crying out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And repent, and many of you will know this, not, uh, not all of you, you, you may think you know what it means, but basically repent means turn away, turn around, go in an opposite direction. Not, not live with or come to terms with or process or or you know, get over, it means turn away from the sin in your life. And, and the time to do it is now. Not when I sorted this out, or when I've got that ready, or when I retire then I'll become a nice person, or whatever it is. It's about now. And there's this extraordinary sense of urgency. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Do it now. And people came in their thousands and heard this message and something in their heart just, they felt what we call conviction. They, it's not shame, it's not condemnation, don't get me wrong, it's not like a guilt trip. They heard John fervently preaching this message and something inside them made them want to be clean again. They didn't need any rabid hellfire damnation preacher to tell them that they were sinners, but suddenly it seemed like the most urgent thing in their life to be forgiven and to be right with God because the kingdom of heaven was upon them. They could tolerate it no longer. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this was Jesus' message too, as I said. The third element of his message that I wanna just uh, highlight here is produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now this deserves a little bit more explanation. It was interesting because as the hundreds and then the thousands and then the tens of thousands started to flock to John out there in this inhospitable wilderness of Zin, it's called, this moonscape, and finally they'd struggle out of the wilderness having had a horrendous journey into this fertile little ribbon which is the Jordan. And there they would be refreshed and there they would hear a message of love and also freedom from sin, they would then be baptized in the Jordan. As this great human mass of people flock to hear John the Baptist speak, so the leaders of Israel at that time, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees and temple authorities, they started saying, what the heck? Where's everyone going? They're going to hear this guy John out in the desert. He's like an Old Testament prophet, you know? And so they did, I, I think they took a leaf out of Gandhi's book. You know, Mahatma Gandhi. 
Gandhi had, had many interesting and challenging things to say. One of the things he said was, there go my people, I must follow them because I am their leader. There go my people, I must follow them because I am their leader. They saw their people as they saw it flocking to John, so rather than just be left out, sidelined, made to look ridiculous, they went with him, trying to sort of follow on and go with the, the flow and all the rest of it. Now John was plain speaking to, to the nth degree. He saw these religious leaders who he knew terrorized in many ways. The people lived in fear of them, their blessing, their curse. He, he knew what they were like. They were ultimately going to be responsible for not only many a, a prophet's death, but for the death of Jesus himself. He knew what they were like. And so as they came to John, John saw them and he said this, you brood of vipers. That's a nice opening line, isn't it? Designed to win friends and influence people. You brood of vipers, he said. Who told you to escape the coming wrath, the fire that is coming, the judgment that is about to break out upon us? Who tipped you off? And then he said this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is a word that actually we all need to take to heart. You see, it's not just words. It's not just going through the motion. This Christian life in the 21st century here in Hertfordshire is not just about doing the right thing, saying the right thing, paying your tithes and showing up to church on a Sunday. It is so much more than that. So much more. And John challenges them, challenged his hearers, and challenges us not just to say the words, but actually to live the word. So when we repent... We live a new life. We, we press on in to take hold of the new life in Christ. We do everything in our power, and we will fail from time to time. It's just part of our human nature, but as the scripture says, we have, we have an advocate in the heaven, even Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation of our sin. Jesus will argue for us, and he will be our counsel in the court of the high God in that moment and we will know his forgiveness. But, he, but that's, that's an important aside. John says, look, it's, it, it might just be a nice jolly trip out into the country to you, but it's gotta be more than that. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, not just leaves, not just a, bit of, a few green shoots and a bit of promise, not just good intentions. Produce a lifestyle, let the Spirit of God, let your let God's spirit within you work within you and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So, so these were the three things I wanted to just focus on today uh, as we're looking at John and his message. But the third thing I wanted to say about John was that he would have hated this message today. He would have hated it. He wouldn't have disagreed with the content. He probably would have said, well, well done, at least yeah, I was trying to say that. But what he would have hated about it was that John was a very reluctant hero. You see, for John, in the most extraordinary way, he was, he, he, it was not about him. He took no pleasure in the, the great hordes that were 
coming to him and hallmarking and flagging that his ministry was a big success. In fact, he said time and time again, and I'll just give you one little example. He said, there is one who, is, who stands among you who is greater than I. You know, you look to me and you come out here great, but there is one who stands among you. He's here now, he's in our midst today. There is one who stands among you who is greater than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You see, Paul was, uh, John rather, was all about pointing, not to himself, but to Jesus, the Son of God. It was all about him. And I say you would hate this message because so far it's all been about John. And that's not what John was about. So to be perfectly honest, out of respect for John and his message, John the man and his message, we're just going to spend the last few minutes looking at a little film clip. I have shown it once before fairly recently where we consider Jesus. Who was Jesus? Who was this one who John was passionate about, who John wanted us to see? Who was he and what was he about? Let's watch this film clip. It's by a chap called Brenton Brown, who's a good friend of ours. He sent it to us a few weeks ago. He used to be a vineyard pastor, a worship pastor in Oxford, and we have, he's a good friend. So just sit back and enjoy this. Let's drop the lights. Thanks, guys. There is a king, a ruler of men and women, who is different to every leader who has ever come before or after him. He's never uttered a false word. He's never promised on something he didn't deliver on. He never spoke untruthfully or equivocally. He's never treated someone poorly or carelessly. He's never uttered one word in selfish anger. He's never manipulated others for his own gain. Nor has he lied or hidden the truth for his own benefit. Not once has he mocked or ridiculed someone in tired anger. Not once has he failed to do what was right. He's lived a life so closely obedient to God that he died without ever sinning. Once. He chose a life of obedience over the pursuit of wealth, despite influencing the greatest civilizations this world has known. He did not write a world bestseller. He was not interviewed by the international press or journalists or broadcasters. In fact, he lived in relative obscurity. He did not possess the finest clothes, nor did he own a royal palace or presidential compound. In his final meal with his confidants, he made no plan for the distribution of wealth, of which there was little. He asked for no glass coffin or monument to be erected in his honor. He required no state funeral, no great political figures were present at his death or burial. In fact, the people closest to him were not army generals or captains of trade. They were not great authors, entertainers, economists, politicians, or leading figures in academia. They were simple men and women 
from simple trades, fisherman, a resistance fighter, a teenager, a state employee. In his last meal with these people, his singular act was to lower himself to the ground and wash each of their feet. He prized humility over any show of force, choosing at this last moment to wash their feet rather than listen to their praise of him. This king died executed as a criminal, punished and humiliated by soldiers and religious leaders and left outside the city walls to die alone. No heads of state, no royalty attended his funeral. No nation declared a day of mourning for his honor. His followers, fearful for their own lives, remained hidden. And the one person to have lived a life without selfishness, without fear, without self-indulgence, without pride, died hanging between two thieves alone. Fortunately, the story does not end there. Modern science and medicine has come a long way. There are many diseases once thought incurable that are now successfully treated without fatality. In the last 50 years, we've placed 12 people on the moon, a celestial body over 238,000 miles away in space. We have developed surgeries and medicine that have raised the average lifespan by decades. We use cell phones and laptop computers. We're able to travel great distances by plane while communicating between continents through digital pulses that literally travel to space and back. We are able to communicate in seconds between vast oceans and continents. We are able to see what is happening on the other side of the world instantly. Our lives are complex and good. And yet despite all this progress in medicine and science and technology, the human race is still crushed every day beneath the weight of one thing. From the richest of the rich to the poorest of the poor, humankind still faces an undefeated enemy, death. Death knew your great-grandparents, death knows your grandparents, death knows your parents, and one day, death will meet with you. But there is a man, only one, who has faced death and defeated it. He has met with death and overcome it. Sure, there have been people who've died and have come back from the dead, but without exception, every one of them has died never to return again. But this one man from the first century in Galilee, a carpenter and a rabbi by the name of Jesus, died and returned from the dead in a body that was impervious to decay, impervious to death, impervious to destruction. He rose again three days later, met with his disciples, ate with them, drank with them, and then ascended into heaven. And is right now, the scriptures tell us, seated at the right hand of God the Father. There is only one man who has done this, the man Christ Jesus. This man, extraordinary in every way, who trumped the feats and successes of every human being who has ever lived, would certainly be entitled to some arrogance, some pride, some demand of respect from humanity. But the scriptures tell us that Jesus was not like that. The scriptures tell us that he was gentle and humble in heart, offering rest and peace for those who seek him. He is a king who wins his citizens not by force, not by war, not by charm or ad campaigns or spin. He wins his citizens by the conviction of truth and by gentleness. This man is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his invitation to eternal life extends to you right now. 
in the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. He says this, I beseech you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In the light of everything that Jesus has accomplished, in the light of the extraordinary life that he lived, and the death that he defeated, worship, honoring, devotion to him is nothing less than reasonable service. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. How many leaders, how many celebrities, how many sports heroes, how many captains of industry have you ever heard say that? I've never heard anyone. But it wasn't about John. John wanted us to see past him and his message to Jesus Christ who stood behind him. And as the band comes up and we finish, I, I would just encourage you, if you're visiting here for the first time, to look past the, the, the welcome that I hope you've received, the contemporary surroundings in what, what I personally feel is a wonderful old converted warehouse. Look past the coffee and the freebies, look past the donuts, look past it all, and look to Jesus, because he is the whole reason why we do what we do. Jesus is our focus. Jesus is our center. And Jesus is our savior. Let's all stand. I'll pray. Lord, we thank you for these heroes. Thank you for these local heroes. Thank you for these heroes of the faith. And thank you for the faithful witness, the story, the life of John the Baptist who quite clearly was something of a force of nature in his own right, and yet he didn't let it rest there. He would have nothing of that. He pointed us and still points us beyond the externals, beyond the superficial, to go deeper and to encounter Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And everyone said, <laughs>